0: The weekly show with david j maloney this week david finishes his conversation with doug johnson of loverboy and now here's your host david j maloney
1: our featured guest tonight is a founding member of one of the greatest bands of his era his band loverboy went on to sell over 10 million records with songs that have stayed in the public consciousness for decades, with songs like Working for the Weekend, Heaven in Your Eyes, from the Top Gun soundtrack, and so many more. Uh, Here to chat about the band, music history, his own fascinating projects, and Loverboy's upcoming tour is their very own Doug Johnson. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So most of us know you and your music, but I'd love to know a little bit more about your
0: background. Where Where did you grow up? So I'm a Canadian, as uh, we all are. Actually, Matt, I think, just got his green card, and he might be applying for U.S. citizenship. Um, uh, and I grew up in in uh, what, what is commonly referred to as the Pacific Northwest up near Seattle. So just over the border is a beautiful city called Vancouver. And I live in a suburb of Vancouver, and that's kind of where I grew up. So um, that, you know, some uh, 64 years ago, I came into the world and... Uh, uh spent the better part of my early years up until i was 20 and then i moved up to another canadian city uh probably 600 miles north of here called calgary and uh, that was in between my second year of college and what ultimately became my musical career um i needed to make some more money to pay for my college at the subsequent year three and four and so i got a job in calgary and and um, ended up running into uh Paul and Mike because I was playing in some local bands there and then we put the the nucleus of the band together basically at that time so yeah so I'm a I'm a Canadian west coast dude and uh I love living here it's a it's a beautiful city beautiful place to be so was music a big part of your life or your home life growing up yeah so my mother played piano and um we had a, a big old upright piano in the house that weighed about two tons um massive iron cast iron back uh, a soundboard on the back I remember when we moved it in it actually the the two work guys the, the two moving guys um, were moving it into the house and they hit a patch of soft soil and the whole thing started to sink into the ground <laughs> my mom started crying and running around and they got they rescued this poor piano but anyways set it up my mom's would play and I get up there beside her on the bench and I kind of mimic what she was doing and she thought, "Oh, that's kind of interesting. He seems to have some bit of rhythmic uh, aptitude so went off and got, took lessons that started taking piano lessons at the age of four <clears throat> and then I completed my um classical degree uh at the age of eighteen and um so that was all of the you know uh you know everything from Bach to through Chopin debussy um all that kind of classical music. You know, I got very well acquainted with all of that kind of Western European music. And then uh, I took some jazz lessons, too, for a while. Um, And I played uh, clarinet in high school. And then I I started playing saxophone uh, for the band, actually, because it was essentially the same fingering from moving from clarinet to uh, saxophone. And then I figured out how to play the harmonica. So, yeah, I play, I, I wear a lot of hats in the band now. So. But basically, my basic core uh, education was definitely classical.
1: When did the performing bug hit you? Obviously, the music bug hit you early. Was there a point in time where you went, this is, you know, I want to be in front of audiences. This is what I want to do.
0: Yeah, you know, I think the turning point for myself and probably a lot of uh, fellow musicians (laughs) of of my uh, vintage, if you will, um, is that that uh, that seminal night on Ed Sullivan when the Beatles played their first show in uh, in North America and it was televised and uh, I remember watching that and going oh my god what a great job that would be you know just singing those great songs and all the girls all oh, the girls screaming. screaming yeah that's right yeah, yeah so um you know I think it was all of 7 or 8 years old and um, that stayed with me and um, you know, you, as you as you go through life in your teenage years and and so on, and you, um, you you're learning the whole way about your your craft and music and so on. Um, you, you you sort of still have those aspirations and fantasies of what it might be like to be an entertainer, and um, uh, and just very sort of haphazardly and, and through some, no real plan of of uh, my own. The universe conspired to put me together with uh, four other guys to 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 uh, create the band Loverboy. So uh, you just never know where, where your paths are going to lead. You know.
1: Well, let's talk about Loverboy. Um, when you guys started out, was there kind of a design or plan to go in a particular direction and try to get into you know uh, the, the music culture the way you did, or were you guys just trying to get local work? Um, I mean, how did that? Come together, you know. Some some bands they have, you know, the blinders on. You know what I mean. And yeah, other ones sure. they get discovered, and then you know. Yeah. How did yeah. that work for you guys?
0: Well, I think it was uh, Paul uh, had had a lot of experience. He's twelve years older than me, so I'm sixty-four. Just turned sixty-four, and and so coming into this, he was definitely the had seniority yeah. in terms of experience, and um, he had a vision um, of of what the band. Um, should be like musically um, I came along um, and added in my influences all throughout the, the songwriting process excuse me and then um, uh, him and I worked together for a couple of months and then Mike came into the scene and of course with his voice we just went oh wow this just moved the, the goalposts again so we started writing for that and uh, I came from kind of the prog rock more keyboard-oriented stuff, obviously. Paul came from the Jimi Hendrix um school of you know of heavy guitar. And, and so the the two of our influences came together to mesh into this sort of unique sort of keyboard versus guitar thing. We're each trying to find our place within the song. And then of course Mike's vocal um delivering the message of the song. Um, that's kind of how the sound, I think, evolved. And it evolved over a period of about 1978 um, when we first started woodshedding in Calgary, um, working on songs. Then we got a management deal uh, from Bruce Allen, who manages Michael Bublé and <clears throat> Brian Adams, a couple other bands I can't remember. But anyway, so he asked us to move back to Vancouver for me, anyways. And, and uh, it was great because I was coming back home. And uh, we signed a deal with him. And um, he uh, found a place for us to continue writing. Um, And uh, we got a call, uh, would have been November 26th, I think it was, of 1979. Our manager asked us if we wanted to be the opening act for KISS. We had never ever played publicly before. Like nowhere, not a birthday, bar mitzvah, nothing. (laughs) So all we were was just like, writing in a warehouse and, and on on gear that was kind of just thrown together so <clears throat> excuse me we uh we said yes and um you know what the heck it, it was a great way to get our music in front of a whole bunch of people to test it out and uh, it actually went over surprisingly well considering the fanaticism of the Chris of the Kiss army you know and we I think we managed to get through about six songs and Kind of got our point across, and then it was time to leave. <laughs> you, know, it's, you don't want to wear it, you're welcome with the KISS fans. So um, that was, a, that was a quite a, a, an experience that shaped and informed kind of how we were going to be as a live band. And uh, it was a great lesson. And, and then to stick around after the show and watch, of course, their show, which is, this is massive, you know, Cirque du Soleil-ish kind of everything, nothing, never a dull moment kind of thing going on. And um, so it was inspiring too.
1: Well, I, when I was, I think, 11 and 12, I was ace really two Halloweens in a row. So I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, the, um, so uh, what do you remember about actually standing on that stage, I mean, or maybe some backstage moments from the show? I, I feel like those are the types of things that the, those memories would be kind of seared into your brain.
0: Yeah, um, I can remember uh, just before going on stage, and the lights went down. And you're like, okay, this is it. This is the big moment. Let's get up there and do our thing. And um I think we started off with uh, Turn Me Loose. And so I'm hold- holding that cord down and I'm not getting any sound. And I'm going, okay, what's going on here? This is terrible. This is embarrassing. Let's get going here. And it turned out that my volume pedal had not been engaged. <laughs> so, but I was so, I was like, So distracted by the immensity of the and the proportions of this of this experience that I was not paying attention to the minutiae that was normally just in my muscle memory. Anyways, figured it out, proceeded with the song, and it was good. And after the show, we all came back and and um, we were all like high fiving, going, "Wow, that was amazing, man! That was so cool!" And you, we all stood up there, we did our thing, nobody freaked out. (laughs) It's like, yeah, good. So. Well, and
1: part of it is you're just trying not to make any mistakes. I, I had the opportunity to speak with with Getty Lee of, of Rush at one point, and oh. he was telling me that, you know, Alex can pay attention to like he'll see things like 16, 17 rows. He can read a sign like 17 rows out while he's playing and then come back later and go, oh, do you see the sign that said such and such? Meanwhile, Getty's like, I'm trying not to trip over a chord. <laughs> I'm trying not to, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to hit yeah. every note. I'm trying not to screw up. So he know, still, even know. though you got muscle memory, you know, you still so, want to,
0: you know, you want to respond and you want to do it in a graceful, respectful way to when people, because that, there's love coming from them to you and, and it's, it needs to be acknowledged and, and I get totally get what he's saying. Um, so yeah, you, you just, you do what you, you got to do and you, you, you hope that your muscle memory will carry the day in in, in situations like that.
1: So so you guys do well at that show. You start working a record. You head to Little Mountain Sound uh, to record, as I recall. W- what do you remember about recording for the first time at Little Mountain Sound?
0: Well, we went in with Bruce Fairburn, um, who had had s- some experience as a producer for a band called Prism, um, who were another Canadian band around about the time that we were starting out. Um, he was uh, very well versed in the art of diplomacy and uh, ego massage and all those things now you also have to understand that by the time we got into the recording studio we had already paid our dues in the nightclubs for probably 8 months so these songs were completely under our fingers and our hair and, and, and i mean we, it it was just so streamlined when we went into the studio they put mics up we usually got these songs done in one or two takes and bruce was like i can't believe this is so this it's so what well, we've been doing this for 8 8 months and like playing our typical shift when we were playing nightclubs would have started us at nine o'clock and we go till 2 AM and we did all original music. There was no cover tunes. So maybe once in a while we'd throw in a Led Zeppelin jam or something, but, um, and people loved it. Now back in
1: that day, were you, I remember back in that day, at least in the States, you'd have a band and they would play like three or four nights in a row at one particular club. And they would just, is that the same way it was then or were you bouncing from club to club?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We actually play uh, six nights a week. Um, so Monday to Saturday and then Sunday we would, that was our rest day. And, uh, and uh, so it was grueling, but it was also um, it shaped us and it allowed us to see directly, like you get a visceral connection with the audience with a song when you're playing in a nightclub, cause it's so close. It's so everybody's hunkered in and you're playing, you're trying out a new song. You can tell immediately if, if there's some kind of a connection being made or, or not. Mm-hmm. And so what a great, you know, laboratory to try out, you know, your experiments of your songs in front of people. So that was really good. So when we got into the studio, well, we had all gone through all that. We had selected the songs that we thought were, um, had got the best response and the ones that we enjoyed playing so uh bruce basically sat behind the the control room desk and just press play press plus record and we we had it all done within a week all the beds and then we took another week and a half to do all the overdubs and uh we were done and uh, delivered it to the record company um i think under budget (laughs) so they loved us and um then it went out onto the radio waves and uh i can remember we were still playing clubs in a little town called lethbridge alberta and mike and i were driving to the drugstore. we had a rental car we were were going to to get i think he had a head cold we're going to get some aspirin or something and we're driving along and our song came on the radio the kid is hot tonight and we pulled over and it was like that scene in wayne's world where they were listening to bohemian rhapsody we just stopped and we were just rocking our heads like yeah, it's kind of like high-fiving, that thing and it was—it was just that thing that such a. Do. Oh, it's a brilliant moment because you know you, all that work and all. All, all that sort of uh, fantasy you have about it, it—it's reality. And you're listening to it on the radio, and and you can't believe your ears that somebody's actually playing music you worked on and wrote on the radio. So, yeah, we've had some great great moments. Um,
1: Did you guys think at that time you were about to start a journey selling like 10 million <laughs> records?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we um, we connected it's, it's somehow. We, we 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 were the right band at the right place at the right time with the right songs, and um, we really had a good good strong run for probably eight years, I think.
1: And and perhaps the right producer, right? Then I'm sorry. And the right producer.
0: Of course, yeah. Bruce Fairburn, for the most part. And then we had Tom Allen, who did uh, Love and Every Minute of it. And then we went back to Bruce. And um, uh, Bob Rock, of course, who's another name uh, that you associate with us. And then he went on to work with Bon Jovi and, uh, and uh, Metallica and so on. So we actually just worked with Bob a couple of years ago. He had a um, some studio time and he had a couple of songs that he thought the band might have fun recording. So um, he had been working with a couple of guys in Nashville and he said, Hey, do you guys want to check out these songs? So we did. And we went in and recorded them too. It was just more of a, like a high school reunion than you know, ex- having any expectation that these songs were going to um, catch, catch on by any means, but um, it was fun. It was uh, an exercise in, uh, in sentimentality, I think more than anything.
1: Out of curiosity, how did you guys get tapped to write the United States team's olympic theme for the 84 olympics
0: how do we get sorry
1: did you guys did you did you guys uh, do some song for the olympics uh, an olympic theme song in 84 something like we that did. I that somewhere.
0: yeah yeah good memory um so that came to us uh that was a request that came to us um from i don't know if it was giorgio moroder remember the uh, that he was a tech um dance tech kind of a guy he did wrote a lot of music um that was kind of the new age techno dance music giorgio giorgio moroder i don't know not sure if i'm pronouncing his name correctly but anyways they 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 tapped him to write this piece and i think he subsequently offered it to us and it it was on um you know abc sports Uh, it got used a lot for that occasion and um uh it was a song we probably wouldn't have written because it was very specific to the whole, you know, competition and uh, the Olympic Games spirit. <clears throat> so, but it was, it was fun. And we, I remember recording it now in Chicago, I think it was, we were on the road and we went in and did it and it was, it was it turned out quite good.
1: Now, out of all the, the hits that you guys have released, which one surprised you the most at the success that it found?
0: Honestly, for me, it was working for the weekend. When, when Paul first brought that song to us, I was like, really? Okay, I get the vibe. It's a real working class man song. Um, and it's got a great hook. Um, but I, I had no idea that it would become the iconic, you know, definitive song for us um when it started to catch on i just was like wow i never would have seen that coming." quite frankly i'm glad it did don't get me wrong but um i it wasn't a song that i thought i mean when i when we had turn me loose and the kid is hot tonight and uh you know the other hits that were on the first album i thought yeah those those are solid songs you've got you know great structure and mike sings them well and for whatever reason I didn't get that same feeling for working for the weekend. I just thought, hey, it's a solid song. Let's see what happens. Um, And uh, man, was I wrong about that song. It just was the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, 80s anthem.
1: Even to this day, I think I was watching The Masked Singer like a couple of weeks ago, and somebody performed that song on The Masked Singer. (laughs) so i I know it's It's been
0: used so many it's the little song that could right i mean uh, yeah there was that hilarious version that patrick swayze and uh oh gosh chris farley did when they were uh chippendale dancers yeah uh and it's been used used, uh in in a couple of movies um so yeah it's it's just amazing how that song just has um you know been part of the milieu of the 80s culture just stuck for sure
1: well speaking of that um when you guys look back do you guys kind of see your own fingerprints on kind of part of the sound of the 80s as you look back because from my perspective you guys really kind of helped kick off some of that particular sound of, of of that decade it was you and just a couple of other bands that had that specific kind of unique sound
0: yeah, whether or not it was intentional, I don't. I don't know. I think um, it just happened by osmosis between our various styles. Um, you know, me coming from the pseudo-classical jazzy sort of background, and Paul coming from his more straight-ahead, Jimmy Hendrixy kind of long guitar, uncomplicated guitar solos kind of thing, and then of course um, Matt with his powerhouse drumming is kicking the crap out of every song. Um, it just created itself, and I don't I think you always look back in hindsight and think, was that something that we deliberately tried to do? I think <laughs> what we tried to do was is remain gainfully employed as musicians, and uh, that was and we accomplished that um, we wrote music that we thought first of all we liked, and then you take that huge leap of faith and hope that your fans are going to like it also. So it's always a crapshoot. And um, a lot of bands have the old sophomore jinx where they have this great first record. And then the, they try so hard to second, right? Yeah. And it's almost like they overthink it and they try to predict what, what, you know, is going to recreate the, the, the same, conditions for the success of the first album. And it's, you can't do that. It's, it's very much a Zen like process where you just write what you think is good. And hopefully that will, you know, uh, attract enough people back to your, your uh, uh, fold that, that you can go back out on the road and, and uh, play some more shows. That's kind of what it's all about. So what was
1: the writing process like for you guys? I mean, I'm imagining notepads, you know, uh, cass- you know, uh, cassettes, uh, you know, just totally different world than we kind of live in today for how you for how you take stuff down. How did you? How? What was the process like for you guys?
0: So, typically, uh, one of us would come to the rehearsal hall with a, uh, an idea, and I would play a riff and an, a, a lyrical phrase. Um, Or Paul would have a a riff or half a song written. Mike would have a bass part or something. We positioned a cassette recorder in the middle of the room. We found the ultimate sweet spot for it to be able to pick up all the instruments, even though it was just, you know, like just a simple monophonic microphone picked up because we had a little, uh, little mini PA system in our rehearsal hall. So we found a sweet spot and we just hit record and then we would play the ideas. Sometimes we would just let it run for hours and then Paul would go back home and listen through and pick out segments that he thought were <clears throat> worthy of further development. Um, yes. Lots of note-taking. Um, lots of lyrical, you know, ideas scrunched up and thrown away and, um, I took notes. I, most of it, I, I just sort of memorized. But there were times when I had my manuscript out and I'm writing ideas out and um, making sure that I, you know, can remember some idea that I had that I don't want. To, I don't want to lose it because we're moving quickly through to another idea. But that's kind of how the process was. It's just work. It's just um, it, it, you had to be patient because the technology was certainly nowhere what it is today, where you can. You know but but the creative process still requires work there's just no other way around it you have to kind of stick to it and and put in the hours to come up with ideas that that will see the light of day is there uh what
1: songs or song from Loverboy would you say probably have your personal influence stamped on them the most or were they always this collaborative effort
0: yeah they were all pretty collaborative i would say i mean uh we all kind of threw in our, our ideas. I always came up with my own keyboard parts and, um, Paul would have some ideas. And I, I, my job was to embellish and to stay out of the guitar's way, basically trying to find my place because, um, and, and likewise, if I had a keyboard centric song, say for instance, a song like, uh, take me to the top, which has this big synthetic intro, um, big analog synthesizer intro. Well, he found a great place with his his wah guitar, and um, if he had been playing big, you know, power chords, it wouldn't work because I had already occupied that space in terms of the sonic field. So that's what we did. We kind of found our place in in when we're building this ultimate stack of 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 uh, sound. You have to find your place within that, and that was uh, that was a challenge. So I would say, um, "Take Me to the Top" was a uh, Obviously, that came from keyboards. Um, There was a lot of uh, cuts like uh, "Doa" from the first album. That was uh, pretty keyboard heavy. There was actually there's keyboards in uh, every song. There's keyboard, um, you know, parts that are pretty, I would say, um, uh, crucial to the the character and personality of the song. and that's kind of what we what we did. We all contributed to that creative process.
1: Do you have a particular favorite touring memory, like one you're never going to forget because it means so much to you?
0: Okay, so being the keyboard player and, and having we just spoke of the song "Take Me to the Top," we were playing in Baltimore, probably 1981. First album had come out, done okay, and the 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 uh, U.S. record company kind of. Um, skeptically released our first album in in the states they only pressed I think 10,000 copies initially not, not expecting it to do much um and we proved them wrong thankfully uh but our second album had was out and they released it in the U.S. also um and it started to get traction on on FM radio and um uh so working for the weekend was starting to get lots of places. Always so take me to the top, and and in different places. It was very interesting to see what places uh, sort of favored the different songs on the on the record. So we're in Baltimore. We're, we're at this massive festival uh, opening up for Forner and uh, Journey, and uh, it was just a, a. I think Joan Jett was on the bill. The Scorpions, and we're we're like the third man up and we're, we're out there, we're on our third song. I think it was Get Lucky and it was like, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, this is a bit of a slog. I don't know if this is gonna work. You know, this is a tough crowd. And uh, so I, we're now I'm transitioning into uh, Take Me To The Top. I do a little keyboard solo and then I go into the, to the song. So there's a little pause, a little pregnant pause, and then boom, 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 and I go into the song. So between that pause, and between me starting that that uh in, introduction introductory note pattern everybody in the jfk stadium stood up on their feet and cheered like this crazy yeah with their fists in the air when i started taking me to the top and i was absolutely blown away i i got chills up my spine just from the response that we got and everybody in the band turned to me went yeah <laughs> you know like This is great. I think we got him. And uh, so unbeknownst to us, Take Me to the Top was a very highly played uh, track in the Baltimore area. And um, so when we went into it, it was just uh, amazing, the response that we got. So that's one of many great memories that I have uh, of the early days, certainly.
1: And and you, you know, you, you were talking about earlier how you play a multitude of of different types of instruments. And and you certainly have not been a one-trick pony for the last, I'd say, 40 years. I understand you have been or had been composing for cinema. What drew you to that?
0: Uh, I think when we took a break between 1988 and 1993, I just kind of turned my attention to writing music for some films and some TV shows. And I actually worked for, believe it or not, an an ad jingle company in Vancouver. And that was really educational. And uh, I learned a lot about, um, you know, what what goes into the art of crafting a branding piece of music and that sort of thing. Um, And then I turned my attention to um, uh, some movies. I did a movie called The Chained Heat 2, which was kind of a bit of a spicy thing back in the, I think it was 1991, 92 when that came out. Was with Bridget Nielsen. Remember, she married Sylvester Stallone, tall yeah. Danish woman. Oh yeah, yeah. She was
1: a, ended up with Flavor Flav. Yeah, boy.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, that was a that was a starting point, and um, I did some other things after that, and then I got into doing a lot of documentary um, work for on TV doc documentary series, um, and lately, I, that's kind of where my focus has been. I. Did a movie a couple of years ago called River Blue, which is a documentary that examines the uh, environmental impact of the garment industry in the third world. So the camera crew went all around the world to, you know, South America, to Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, in all throughout Asia, basically um, documenting documenting what's happening when you have these huge uh, corporations that are going into these countries with impunity and basically contaminating the local water supply with all of their effluent that's effluent that's coming out of their manufacturing process so th- this is that's what it was called river blue because there's some rivers in China when they're making denim jeans that turn blue from the dye that they just release into the local river and of course it's causing all kinds of health problems for the mm. local population and uh, so that there was a bit of a downer the movie i mean it's it was real eye opener for me and certainly made me more aware of my my um you know buying uh choices when it comes to clothing um Thank there are know. a lot of different clothing now that's, that has less of an impact on if you look for it you know on the environment so um and then i did another one called um the last paddle about a very famous guy who um it was sort of connected. There's almost a sequel to that movie and uh, about his life uh, traveling the world, um, the, the world's river system, and documenting the health of, of the planet's rhythm, uh, river systems. So, yeah. So then now I'm doing uh, a, a documentary series that I'm starting right now. Actually, I'm working on it now. It's called uh, uh, Northern Air Rescue. And it follows. Three female pilots uh, who live in northern Canada, they have a small airline there there, and they do all these search and rescues, they do um, supply delivery runs, they do all this sort of really death defying stuff because the weather up there is just so unpredictable, and they're in these little planes and uh, so they're making a series kind of a reality t v series about how these women are able to cope with the challenges of being in that place and being. A female and being a pilot at the same time, so um, yeah, I, I enjoy doing it because you, we go on the road, and especially during, you know, the COVID lockdown, that's kind of what I did, and uh, uh, I missed playing, but I also really enjoyed working um, on these different projects. So
1: now you've got a fantastic tour coming up with I think Ario Speedwagon and Sticks. How did that come about, and what got you three? Bands together I mean had you guys ever done stuff together before
0: so that yes we have to answer your last question first we've done lots of shows with these other two bands uh, over the years we're we're like brothers in arms I mean we when we see each other we hug each other and congratulate each other on on us. Number one, being alive. And number, two, still, <laughs> and number two, being able to high five, you know, you're still so Yeah, hey, we're still here, man. We're still above ground. This is great. Um, and then also yeah. th- just the the pure privilege of being able to play still and and play for people that are wanting to come and see your songs and hear your songs. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's like going to be just one big happy family and there's no like ego issues anymore. There's no like, well, they can't have any of our lights and they can't have any of our PA system. And it's all no no this is all it's all equal um we're we're gonna open up uh we'll probably play for between 35 and 40 minutes and then i don't know how they're gonna order it after us but i'm i'm sure we're gonna be the uh the opening act because you know we're the junior uh, uh team in this whole uh roster so um we'll uh we'll yield our opening position to well they'll yield their opening position to us and and that's probably how it's going to work but i'm really looking forward to it. we got dates all the way from may till the end of september now they just added a bunch of new ones so
1: so what what can uh what can audiences expect to see from the bands if they if they uh, pick up some tickets
0: so you're gonna see uh just the hits you're going to see uh all the songs that you they'll it's going to be like a time travel experience i think because for a lot of people music is are the 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 time signposts i guess if you will of their lives and when they hear these songs it's going to transport them probably back to a time in high school or college or elementary school who knows and that's what we want we want them to uh, experience that same um uh the feeling that they had when our music was kind of the soundtrack to their life because in a lot of we hear that so often you know people come up to us after the show and says you have no idea what it's like to hear you and see you again live after all these years it says it just brings it all back all the great times I had before i had kids and before i had to have a job and all this stuff and so that's kind of nice that we're able to do that
1: no, oh, it, it reminds I mean, it's it's interesting how a certain song will bring you back to a road trip you were on or uh, an event in your life. and uh, especially when it has that kind of nostalgia that brings you back to, you know in many cases, times that you know everybody it's interesting. we tend to look back on uh, on our younger years more fondly as we as we right. get older. So it is kind of it's 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 awesome when you get to do that. Um, you know it's it's I think the it, I know I saw Paul McCartney for the first time, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And it brought you right back, right back to like you were saying, brought you right back to Ed Sullivan because he's there and he's got the the Hoffner and he's bouncing the same way. And you're like, I'm back.
0: Uh, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah. Music is as a that's the magic of music, I think, is it It really just transports you back to that time. And uh, I, I actually saw him with, my, I went with my brother uh, to see Paul McCartney about 10 years ago. And he was in really good voice that night. He sang just up into the rafters. And what a great journey that was because his career spans so many times. And certain songs would come up and i go, oh, my God, that was the summer of 1975. I remember when that song came on the air and I was working outside as a gardener and it was so great. I got a great tan that year. And I, you know, all these memories just come back and, uh, it's great when people tell us that our music has that same effect on them, uh, in a, in a positive way. It's just very satisfying to hear that. So,
1: so where can our audience go to follow you guys on social media?
0: Uh, we have a Facebook page and to get there, We are at loverboyband.com slash Facebook and that will take you there. And we post occasionally after shows or when something's happening to one of us or or collectively all of us. Uh or we just want to put a message out of of some kind. Uh, Yeah. So it's uh, that's basically where you'll find that kind of stuff.
1: Doug, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time we've been able to spend spend together. Ladies and gentlemen. Doug Johnson.
0: Thank you very much.